Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. My guest today is Linda Raquel Nieves Perez, who is another colleague of mine in the forthcoming young adult anthology, Where Monsters Lurk and Magic Hides. The book comes out on November 10th, and it's perfect for fans of sci-fi, fantasy, romance, and horror who are looking for Latina stories. On the podcast, Linda shares about a favorite worship song that came from a spiritual church mother and how artistic expression was always an integral part of her church experience. We also talk about the power and beauty in Lizzo's flute playing and the problems with policing Latinx identity in the book publishing world. Stick around for the end of the episode where Linda shares an excerpt from her short story called When They Come. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Hi, everyone. My name is Linda Raquel Nieves Perez, and my pronouns are she, her, ella. Wonderful. And what country slash countries do you and your family come from? Okay, so it's kind of a mix. We all live in Puerto Rico right now. Um, so for the last generations, we've been here in Puerto Rico, but my grandmother comes from Cuba and her whole family comes from Cuba. So it's kind of a mix from Puerto Rico and Cuba, just Caribbean energy all around. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, just islands, only islands, nothing else. <laughs> so, well, we're in Puerto Rico, roughly, you know, not not exactly, unless you feel like it, but uh, where where are you on the island? I live between two places because since I'm still studying, um, I travel a lot. I am from Puerto, from Arecibo, mm -hmm. but right now I'm living in San Juan. So I travel constantly between Arecibo to visit my family and San Juan to work and study. Okay. Okay. So what's a good memory that you have about growing up? Um, anything from your childhood that is particularly interesting, happy, fun, whatever <laughs> is uh, hitting you? Okay, so um, I think I've mentioned this um, before, but one particular memory that I love from when I was a child is that my grandma, um, actually the one from Cuba, <laughs> uh, she would kind of get all the primos together and we would go um, either sitting in hamacas or just going before going to bed and she would tell us stories and kind of let us help her tell the story mm. so we would start uh, a story like uh, juan bobo <laughs> um, okay. went to the store and did this and this and we would all like comment and add to the story and Doing that, we went on journeys that were as exciting as actually going to the store or, you know, mm -hmm. um, exploring uh, the mountains behind our house, what kind of monsters mm -hmm. were hiding there or what kind mm -hmm. of magical creatures were hiding there. So that's a memory I really 
uh, love and enjoy and treasure. It was kind of like the beginnings of my storytelling journey. Um, but also it's such a great memory about like family and just exploring and creativity and everything magical from childhood. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. And immediately as you were saying that I was like, okay, yeah, that's the, those are the seeds for the author and the storyteller that makes perfect sense. And what a beautiful place to sort of be immersed in from such a young age. Like literally you said the, the magic. Um, I have family in Puerto Rico. I'm second generation and my abuela's side goes like four generations back in the mountain area. Um, I Bonito, Coamo, all that. Okay, yeah. And every time, every time I go there, it's actually my favorite place to go when I go there and I'll get to go there um, for Thanksgiving. We're having a family uh, gathering for Thanksgiving. So I'll be there. Um, and like, I'm like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, it's just, there's something different. I mean, cause I've been to mountainous areas like in the U S a little bit, but in Puerto Rico, it's just different. It's, I know it's a different. It, it, it's yeah. something, I don't know if it's some type of vibes. I don't know if it, if it's like mm -hmm. the coquillas singing in the night, I don't know what it mm -hmm. is that makes it so magical yeah. and so almost otherworldly, but it's it's amazing. So yeah, it's it was great yeah. exploring that as kids. And I also love that because I, I had that too. My mother read to me a lot as a child. She was very focused on reading to me and you know, getting me to read books and all of that. She was very much about that. And um, so I, I related to that in your story too. You had, you had your abuela who's, you know, kind of doing the same thing and she's even making it interactive. I can't remember not disrespecting my mother at all <laughs> on the podcast. Um, but I, I'm just saying, I don't really remember us doing too many of those sort of interactive stories. I think we did a little bit. I know I did with my dad. Um, where I would essentially write fan fiction of The Land Before Time because I loved those <laughs> movies when I was You're growing so up. Funny. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, but that that is really quite special. And so speaking of this sort of magical sense that you had as as a young child, what's the first meaningful... I guess, experience or understanding that you had of any sort of spirituality or religion as a kid? Okay. Um, I actually can't remember a specific first, um, like, experience with religion or something like that because I was born and raised in church. So it's mm -hmm. always felt like something that's a given. Um, mm -hmm. But I do remember... Um, specifically, I was born and raised, and I still go to a Pentecostal church um, here in Puerto Rico. Okay. So um, it's always been, I don't <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to explain it in a way that makes sense. But again, it's always been a part of me. It's always been a part of my mm -hmm. family, who they are. But I do have to say that I think the first uh, thing that comes to mind when it comes to spirituality or, or like becoming a part of my religion is singing and anything that has to do with music. Because my family also uh, is a family of musicians. 
my father uh, sings. Most of my uncles and aunts sing. And we've always taken part in this part of, you know, adoration uh, of singing mm-hmm. and music and anything that has to do with that. So while I can't point a specific uh, event or thing that happened, I think I grew in my spirituality through music. That's such a common, I feel like that's a very common experience. I, I don't know if it's a whatever, like a law of attraction thing. I feel like the past like five people that I've had on the podcast, and I, I love it, there's always some sort of music connection. And uh, I mean, it's such a big part of Christian worship, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and there's so many, there's so many different, like, styles of worship and styles of, of music, too. Uh, I also come from a musical background. I get that from my dad. Um, and I play music in church and sing and all that good stuff as well. It's a very engaging thing to do in like when you specifically do it for church because you're doing it like every week and it's very like you're so active in it. It's I, I find myself like more in tune with what's going on in the community of the church or like more in tune with sort of um, the season that we might be in or the different like things we might be talking about in church, just because not that I'm not like usually planning the music because I'm not the music director or anything like that. I work with the music director, but it's, I I have, it's just on my mind a lot more that connection between music and spirituality. Um, So on that on that thread. Well, I guess before that, so you were in church, you know, all of your life. So did you have any sort of like funny childhood ideas of like what Jesus is doing or like, uh, like, for example, I went to Catholic church when I was really, really small. And we used to sing this song that went glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. But when I was a little kid, I used to think that the words were peas to his people. Like God was giving peas, <laughs> like the food. And, and I was like, wait, why is God giving peas to people? That's such a, that's such a very specific thing. So do you have anything kind of, I don't know, silly like that, that you sort of like believed about Jesus or God back then? Okay, so, um, you know, the story of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fishes Mm -hmm. i always thought that supermarkets would go to jesus to ask for fishes in order to have like food in stock so Mm -hmm. you know right (laughs) thank you jesus (laughs) right you know they should do that (laughs) i'm I'm sure that would solve a lot of problems problems. I, i used to I used to tell Jesus, I was like, I'd be in like first grade. I used to tell Jesus about like all the Pokemon that I liked. (laughs) And, um, but then I think I got like too obsessed with Pokemon and my mom and my parents were like, "Mm, you're too obsessed with that. You need to chill. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I would, I would do stuff like that. I'm trying to think of, uh, anything else kind of silly like that. I, I never got, I remember one time I asked my mom, like, okay, what's the word of God? And she's like, the word of God is the Bible. I'm like, okay, but the Bible has a lot of words in it. So which word 
is the word. And she's like, the Bible is the word. I'm like, I'm like, but which word in the book? She's like, it's the whole thing. I'm like, but there's lots of words in there. And I'm like, I'm like seven, I'm whatever, how old, however old, old I was. And I also was really salty because I couldn't have communion. And right. in my seven-year-old, yeah, in my seven-year-old little brain, I was like, wait a minute, everybody else gets to have a snack and I don't get to have a snack. That's not fair. <laughs> my mom's like, well, you have to have your first Holy Communion. I'm like, I'm like, well, how do I do that? And she's like, you have to be in Sunday school. I'm like, okay. But then she like, didn't put me in Sunday school. Um, and <laughs> And like, I don't know, it was it was just weird. I remember going down to like the basement of the church during like they would take the little kids out of the service at some point and like go down and have like a children's sermon. And I remember like all the other kids that would go down all knew each other because they were all in Sunday school. And like I didn't because I wasn't in Sunday school. Yeah, I was like, I was like, hey, you know, um, but I was into it. I, I really liked going down there and like hearing all all the little stories and everything like that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, so for, so for me too, it's just like, it was kind of, it's always been like a lifelong thing, but it's certainly shifted so, so mm-hmm. much over the years. Um, I wanted to get back to this music thread a little bit because I want to ask you, what are some songs i guess that you um that you sing in church that really connect with you okay so most of them are in spanish i don't know if there's a Mm -hmm. translation for them um there's this song i really liked that's called inexplicable which is about how um god's love is so hard to describe at some points and that song was stuck to me by I guess you could call her like my spiritual mother in church. Mm-hmm. We used to have, um, I mean, I say used because I'm not a child anymore, <laughs> but mm-hmm. the children in church still have this. Um, that is uh, a person in church will kind of like adopt you as a spiritual child and they would um, be a person that would pray for you uh, if you had any need to talk, any need to ask questions, they would be there for you. Um, And this spiritual mother, (laughs) um, she helped me grow in a lot of ways, but this was one of her like favorite songs too. And at first I really liked it because she had an amazing voice. Um, But as I grew up and I came to understand the lyrics of the song, Like, it became my song. It's a song that really touches me. It's a song that really helps me when I'm feeling, like, alone. So I think that's, like, one of those go-to songs that I know if I'm feeling, like, extremely anything, like, any type of emotion, I can go to that song and kind of be comforted. Mm, That's beautiful. Um, So you mentioned that, you have a lot of singers that everybody sings in the family. What about instruments? Does anybody play instruments? Yeah. Um, my grandfather from that side of the family, um, uh, he was like the music director when the mm-hmm. church started because um, this church in which I go to, it's in Bajadero, Arecibo. Um, that church has been there for almost 90 years um which is a lot because like 
uh, Christianity has only been in Puerto Rico for around 100, 106 years, depending on the area. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those first um, churches. And my grandfather was the music um, director when it was funded. So after he, he was music director, all my uncles from that family learned an instrument. So mm-hmm. uh, my oldest grandfather plays um, the guitar. Other of, another of my uh, uncles plays um, the drums. Another plays the piano. Some play the saxophone. I mm-hmm. play the flute. Okay. <laughs> and, and I also play piano. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but right now, I think most of the people of my family like sing instead of like play instruments like we okay. can move into that direction but okay. there are a few sure. of us who know instruments and like music okay cool cool so flute so did you see uh lizzo's performance yes. i didn't see her i didn't see her performance i saw the tiktok where she was in the library of congress playing very beautifully Mm -hmm. that crystal flute so i'm curious from a from an actual flautist um (laughs) what what are your thoughts about lizzo and her flute playing um first of all the the presentation was beautiful like i loved it Mm -hmm. so much um i think the piece she shows i don't know the name of it but it was beautiful Mm -hmm. whatever the Mm -hmm. name or the title of the song is it was amazing um, but mm-hmm. also coming from like uh, an Afro-Boricua, a black person, uh, a fat mm-hmm. black person, it was mm-hmm. it was such a beautiful thing to see um, mm-hmm. because I mean some people might not see it like this, but it was an act of reclamation. Like this flute that was from one of these slave owners that didn't let. Um, black people enjoy their creativity, their um, musicality, anything that had to do with arts. They forced them to give that up completely. This flute that was mm-hmm. from that person is now being played by again a black fat artist, and it was mm-hmm. it was a beautiful wow moment. But it also like the performance was amazing, so it, it was great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always enjoy it when, you know, somebody who is a really popular, like top 40 artist, where it turns out that they have some type of like classical background, like whatever that may be, <laughs> like how Lady Gaga went to Juilliard and like some of these other things that I find out along the way. And it's and then like I listen to their music after knowing that. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, that, that is probably why I like this because not, you know, I don't listen to a ton of top 40 stuff, but the ones that sort of shine through in these ways, like, like Lizzo, like Lady Gaga, um, to me, they, they shine through and, and I like, I listen, I'm like, yeah, I really, I, I, I dig this. And then it's like, oh, well they, they have, they have some, they went to like musical school for something. It's like, okay. And they're choosing to make their art this kind of simple ish pop stuff for the most part, but they know what they're doing with it compared to maybe, I don't know, maybe like other people who end up in the top 40 for a little bit, but they don't have that training or that background. So 
you know, maybe, maybe they still make it big. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> the way the music industry works is like, not, yeah, it's um, yeah not, not, you know, my area of, of expertise, but, um, but I, I think it's important or, or one of the other ways that it, that it's important. I mean, in addition to, to what you said, like, absolutely. It's just such a, uh, I, I saw I saw a comment somebody on the internet said she should they they should let her Lizzo they should let Lizzo dig up his grave and she could play the xylophone on <laughs> Thomas Jefferson's rib cage like you know with with what that what that guy did to to her ancestors to everybody's ancestors you know that you know that guy all you know all of that um but I but I think too it's I think it's important for like just to sort of I guess break break the stigma that uh you know or break sort of a barrier between top 40 pop music that you know some people would look down on because they would say that oh this there's no art put into this there's no sophistication to it um you know these these people like they're just kind of like the next hot thing or, or whatever um and then on the other side to sort of say like, well, you know, who knows how many people are going to start playing the flute now because Lizzo just played the flute in public and, and just kind of saying, well, you know, actually these, you know, quote, classical instrument, orchestral instruments, whatever you want to call them, um, like they actually can be relevant and uh, and good to, to play and incorporate into, you know, music that everybody likes because um, they're there's that whole discourse about like, Oh, well, certain genres are dead or like certain, uh, certain musical instruments are like, you know, not cool or, or whatever. And this sort of thing just sort of shows that like, no, like you can combine it actually in, in really cool ways. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if this is true. I think I just read this on, on Tumblr, like a post long post someone made underneath the TikTok of Lizzo playing, talking about how she, did she have, um, somewhat of a career as a flautist before like doing the pop thing I might be wrong about that and if you don't know that's okay I'm just throwing I'm out the not question exactly sure I think I read because I know Lisa but I don't follow her so I think I read that she did had like a career or she was thinking about having a career in like um classic music um mm. but then she blew up and she said, mm -hmm. "Okay, uh, let's let's take advantage of this. Like, let's do this." Okay. And she like um, di dived full on to like sure, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. rap and everything that she's doing mm -hmm. right now. But I do mm -hmm. know that she includes some um, flute portions in some of her songs because mm -hmm. the other okay. day I was listening to one of her songs that came from the radio. And mm -hmm. at the end, it had like a, a 30 second interlude of her playing the, the flute. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds like mm. <laughs> so. OK, yeah, yeah. I think she did. Yeah. Was going like okay. was going to through that direction. But at the end, she decided to start like her career. I remember this was a couple of years back now. I was listening to a podcast about like black composers and like black folks in classical music and sort of the history of erasure around there. Um, like there were, there was, and I'm, this is a podcast from like 
the height of the pandemic that I listened to. And I, I had like a lot of other stuff going on that year too. So I just don't remember anybody's names offhand, but there was a contemporary, I believe of either Mozart or Beethoven, one of those guys. Um, and he was black and he, his pieces, this podcast was going, was explaining how like his music was, you know, just as good or, um, or like he, he was kind of in the same circles, but like he was snubbed from having his stuff performed, um, or, or whatever, like wasn't getting the credit or any of that. Um, and, uh, and then just it, the podcast kind of traced it, that history into today and how there's still kind of this, I guess this perception that like, Oh, uh, you know, there's, there's no black folks in classical music or, mm -hmm. or that's not music that, you know, that black folks get, get involved in, which is just not, true at, at all it's a very unfortunate and like terrible uh stigma to have that it's that oh classical music is all the stuffy white people mm -hmm. from the 1800s music and it's like no that you know black people were involved in, in this too and they and they can be involved in this music now they can be interested in it they can do what lizzo's doing and kind of you know incorporate it into whatever it, it is they're doing and i was just as you were talking about this i was i was thinking like if Lizzo did become a classical musician instead, we probably wouldn't know about her or most people mm -hmm. might not know about her because it's just not very mainstream. But then, you know, she would be doing cool stuff by, you know, being a black woman doing classical music that still f seems like it's breaking barriers today. Um, but then we wouldn't like culture wouldn't know who she is. And so would that how how far reaching would that impact be versus like what the reality is where she's this uh pop star this rap star um who's like oh by the way i can play a flute amazingly yeah uh and i know i you know, she probably knows all like she can probably dance circles around music theory and all, all this kind of stuff that's associated with a very you know kind of stuffiness in a lot of ways um and uh so I just, there's just a lot about it that I actually think is, is really cool um, with, which is sort of like, you know, un, unexpected. I, I think a lot of people probably, you know, didn't expect or wouldn't, wouldn't have expected that sort of thing. Um, wouldn't have expected to be like, oh, oh, she can play the flute. And of course the absolute uh, losers are pissed about it for those, for those reasons. They're the ones with the like, super elitist attitude and and they're super racist and they're like you know oh my gosh that's a precious breakable instrument it's like she she knows how to do, play it like yeah she's not we, we well we know what the problem is yeah. for them but you know they yeah. act like she's taking the flute and like dropping it on the floor like she's right. playing an she's... instrument right 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 so you've had this I guess always this integration of um, storytelling and music in your life. So then how did you as an author, as a writer and a storyteller develop? And did that, does that have any connection or maybe it doesn't with the growth of your spirituality? Like as you came into your own being, and your own sort of theology and, and beliefs, how does that work with yourself as a creative person? Hmm. I think um, growing up in church, I don't know how your church works, but mm -hmm. in my church, we're always like 
doing different stuff. So we're having a drama this day, or we're going to have like um, some type of musical um, in a few months, or we're going to do this or this or this. And most of it revolves around um, storytelling and creative storytelling. So I think that it definitely impacted the way I approach um, how I tell a story. And I hadn't noticed that until recently because um, mm. writing a sermon is really similar to writing a short story. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was drafting a short story and I was like, hmm, this feels familiar. <laughs> and that's when my brain like clicked it. Um, so I do think that growing up in church definitely helped me as a creative person. It definitely helped me develop a lot of storytelling um, traits, um, how to engage uh, the person when you're talking or when you're creating something that's going to be read. Um, I think it developed that, but also like, again, uh, my family has a lot of creative people um, my grandma was like my biggest inspiration and the person that definitely pulled me towards like this creative, um, journey. Uh, she liked, she loved books. She loved anything that had to do with theater, anything that had to do with poetry. So she was always reading. She was always telling stories. She was always creating something around her. And it was in a way that she could be cooking and you could still feel like something um, being created by her mere presence or her mere existence. So it was, hmm. it was definitely a mix between um, growing up in a place where being creative and like storytelling was a part of the religious practice and spirituality and also having this reinforcement on my home and having like again my grandma which is the story which, uh, who was the storyteller of the family and mm -hmm. just mixing those two things up mm -hmm. yeah i love how you said that writing a sermon is like writing a short story um i've written like one sermon in my life and well in in my church, especially at that time, it was, to me, it felt a little bit more like writing a blog post, but there can be kind of like a similar, like not, it's like a nonfiction versus fiction thing, but I definitely see like the, for the most part, the UCC is not, um, it's not super influenced by, like Pentecostal traditions, though we have a lot of, we do have a lot of that mixture, especially in our, in our black churches. Um, but uh, the UCC is like majority white. It's like 85% white. And a so a lot of the typical churches are, you know, um, not uh, much more like low key. And um, there's definitely aspects of storytelling. I, I, always see every time I go to a conference, there's always some workshop or other about storytelling, like biblical storytelling and that sort of thing. So it's, it's definitely there. Um, and, but, but I think that it's not quite, at least in my church that I go to, we're moving in this direction actually to like 
have more arts and spirituality, like, you know, combined. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think that is so important to have creativity and arts be an integral part of Christian worship because we literally call God a creator and to, and to sort of, I don't know, there's, there's a certain way I feel that the church throughout its very long history has sort of decided you know, that in some cases, entire art forms are bad and can never like be part of church or have always said like, oh, well, only this kind of uh, of this art form is allowed and, and acceptable. And it's like, well, you know, we are full and complete human beings. And sometimes art should uh reflect Reflect that that sometimes even even means even means ugliness at times um so um so what what i guess drew you well not what drew you to 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 writing fiction what's what's i guess the first sort of fiction piece that you wrote that kind of made you feel like okay this is something that I really want to do or or something that I'm like really into I'm looking around because I'm pretty sure I have like my copy of the first short story I wrote um give me a second okay here we go we have my short story Um, (laughs) (laughs) this was like my first published work it's called okay. Rabito y la Gran Carrera. It's a short story I mm-hmm. wrote and illustrated myself when I was around okay. like five or, or six years old. So mm-hmm. um, this, I think, is the first time that I said, hey, this is something I want to do. And I just right. did it. I made my silly illustrations. <laughs> I wrote my okay. story and I published it. My mother helped me mm-hmm. with the ribbons. And I've had okay. this for like the longest time. It's been with me for mm-hmm. it's eight, eighteen years. Oh my God. <laughs> Middle life crisis. <laughs> um, it's been 18 yeah, years. That's fair. 18 mm-hmm. years since I made this. And mm-hmm. it's definitely been my inspiration because when I wrote this, I I can still remember the amazement at having, oh, look at this. This is my story. Mm-hmm. This is my completed story. Right. And you can read yep. it and people can pick it up. And that mm-hmm. sort of like emotion and that sort of feeling of, hey, I can share this or I can see this in a physical way was definitely mm-hmm. what, what drove me towards like trying mm-hmm. and like learning how to be an author and a writer. Mm hmm. That is incredibly relatable because I, too, started writing fiction at a very young age. I mean, I I think it was pretty much since I learned how to write like physically write. I was writing in notebooks. I was talking about the things I was watching on Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and, and whatever. Um, the first story I ever typed on a computer, I remember, was a it, it turned out to be a crossover fanfic between the magic school bus and the land before time. I didn't know what fanfic was at the time. I mean, I was like five. Um, I was just like, I like the magic school bus and I like the land before time. And I was like, well, what if the magic school bus 
went to the land before time. And it was like all of a paragraph long or, or whatever. But and I wrote, I also wrote this like pretty, to, it, to me, I remember it as epic, but I don't know how, how epic <laughs> it actually was. Um, a Thundercats fanfic. Um, and I wish, I wish I still had it somewhere in my files, but I don't, it's, it's long gone. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I have a lot of those types of things that you have too, of like, I'm a little kid and I wrote this, this or that. I have an extremely cringy story that I wrote in middle <laughs> school. Um, that is, I was like 10 and it's, it's very good, bad middle school writing, it wasn't even fantasy because I wasn't into fantasy at that point. Think of like, well, there was this show. I don't, I don't know if, if you saw it, but there was this show Degrassi that was on. Um, I know about it, but like, I haven't uh, seen it. Okay. Okay. It's like a teen drama show uh, that was like a reboot from, an, I don't know, when the original one came out in like the 80s or whatever. Um, but uh, but the, the reboot was like on when I was right at that age. And... I just, it was so full of petty drama, uh, pe like, and like weirdly things that like weirdly escalated into like ridiculous territory. Like I, every once in a while I pull it out and I read it and I'm like, this is hilarious. <laughs> it's so awfully bad. Um, Actually, but we heard uh, a lot. Like a week or two ago, I was going through like my files and stuff and I mm -hmm. found a few Wattpad fanfics I did when I was in middle school, yes. too. And I also yes. found, like, an original story I'd started. It was, like, a mystery. There were, like, okay. uh, like 20 kids that were stranded on a school in Utuado in the mountains. And there was a killer. Okay. And they needed to find uh -oh. it. And it was so, oh, man. so dramatic. <laughs> and I was reading it. I was like, no. Why did I write that? But it was it was oh also so God. fun because it was like, oh, look at me go. <laughs> right, right. But that's that's part of it, right? And and I think, you know, as in the author community and in the writer community, I think there's a lot of us that start at that really, really young age. But then there's also, you know, folks that start in middle school and high school or maybe even college or or as adults. And I feel like in some ways it's you know, like no matter what you have your stage where you do your crappy writing and everything is cringy and everything is awful and, and bad. Um, and you have to go through that stage, but at least when, when you start, when you're five, you kind of get you through, the, you, you get it all over with. Yeah. You, you get it all over with um, versus like you start your, bad writing because you because you're new and it's it's in high school and it's in college and it's an adult I mean I, I say this like as if I have good writing I have some good writing maybe but I mean I still there's still we're a lot getting of, there a lot of we're getting we there have. yeah 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 so I want to talk about uh, well actually I want to talk about two things I want to number one um talk about the first it's your it's your debut short story, right? That's in yes. uh, Reclaim the Stars. Okay, so I'm going to hold it up. Me Reclaim too. the Oh, yes, <laughs> look at us. Okay, so uh, this anthology is called Reclaim the Stars. It is uh, 17 sci-fi, fantasy, speculative fiction stories, all Latinx, Latine. Um, and I am a little over 100 pages into it so far. I've 
really enjoyed um, almost all the stories so far. There's one that was kind of like, eh, okay, you know, whatever. But all the other ones, I'm like, oh, I lo- I'm into this. This is great. Um, and uh, and this came out in this February. Year. In February, yes, yes. yes. And uh, well, what's cool about this, at least what I think is is cool about this, is uh, in, in my view, I'm like, these are some big names on here. Zoraida is the editor, and yes. then like all these other people. I'm like, I'm like, these people have like fifty thousand billion books out, and or they have fifty thousand billion Twitter followers, and like literally everybody knows who they are. Um, Claribel Ortega, who is the author of Witchlings, which is such a little treat, um, big Owl House vibes, but like in all the good ways. Um, I actually I got some, somebody... it to read it like right now in like season. So I'm yeah, so excited. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And somebody, because I because I mentioned the Owl House, I, met, I make this comparison lovingly because somebody on the internet earlier in, in during Latinx Heritage Month, somebody had the, had the caucasity to say <laughs> that Witchlings rips off of the Owl House. And I had to go back, I had to log on to Twitter and I had to be like, I know, I know I'm not hearing about this. I know people aren't saying that an actual literal Dominican author is ripping off of a story that a white woman, woman created with a Dominican character. I know we're not pitting these two against each other because, well, I can't speak specifically for, um, for the Dominican like rep of things, but as far as like generally Latina rep, I'm like, I love Luz. I love her mom. I love, I love this show. It's so, it's so cute. It's so, it's so good. Um, but no, people, people have to make it a, make it a contest and have to be like, Oh, this is, this is ripping off. I'm like, no dude, if you like the owl house, read you're Witchlings gonna, yeah. because you're going to get the same energy. You're going to love it. It's not like um, you can have anyway, I'm one or the other. You can have both right. and enjoy both. You can have both. <laughs> right. Right. Porque no los dos? Like the, the little girl in the commercial says, yes. like, we just need to follow her lead. Um, but in any case, so, so you're, uh, you're published, uh, this, and this is your debut short story. Is that right? Yes. So among, I mean, that, that's like kind of, kind of big. So I'd love to hear the story of just like how you got to be involved in this. What was the process? Okay, sure. Um, back in May, 2020, right when, the bad times had started. <laughs> um, Soraida uh, sent like a submission call for Afro Latine writers because the mm-hmm. anthology was already in the works. But okay. uh, Soraida specifically wanted to make sure that there were more like Afro Latine authors because Afro Latine mm-hmm. authors have very few opportunities to like actually. Mm-hmm make an impact in the publishing industry. So she was trying to find an, an Afro-Latina author for the anthology to join mm-hmm. the other the other Afro-Latinas that are there. So um, I started writing because I had this idea for the longest time. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that was like the building block for Whitewater Blue Ocean, which is my story in the anthology, um, had been with me for probably a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had even written down the first line, which is when Abuela told me she loved me, we all could smell it, the lie. So I mm-hmm. wanted to like create something around this. So I said, 
this is my chance. This is my opportunity. I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started writing and I wrote the story. I edited like a million times, but I still didn't feel like they were going to pick mine. So I waited until the day the submission call ended. Like, um, I think so I opened the submission in May and mm-hmm. the submission call was going to be open until July 15. So those two months I was agonizing over uh, the submission call. I was writing, mm-hmm. I was editing, but I waited until the last day, like 20 minutes before the deadline uh, ended. And I said, you know what, let's do this. Let's believe. And I sent it. Mm-hmm. And then I think I think the original submission call said that they would contact the authors so the author selected um, around the first week of August. Mm-hmm. So it was about to be September and I was like, okay, I didn't get in, but but I'm sure. gonna continue writing. I'm going to mm-hmm. continue making stories and maybe in the next one I'll get in. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly I get this email. I remember that I had classes that day um, because actually in that August, I started law school. So I remember I had classes that day and I was, it was around 9 Mm a.m. I remember so many details. Yeah. (laughs) It was about 9 a.m. And I received like a message from Soraya and I was like, this is the Mm -hmm. email they sent people to tell them, hey, we didn't pick your story, but... Right. You you have yep. to continue and hopefully your chance will come. And I was like, okay, it's okay. I'm a big girl. I can take this. Right. 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 So I opened yeah. the email and the only thing I read was the congratulations. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> right. Right. I, I think I read that word and I started weeping. I was sobbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was crying. Um, and after like five minutes, I said, hey, I need to finish the email. <laughs> so I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, after like an hour of crying, um, I reply. And that started the whole process of editing and becoming a part of the anthology. Circe Moskowitz, which is the other mm-hmm. debut author. She's also a Latina. And mm-hmm. Sarayda was telling us um, when they selected us, she was like, we were supposed to pick only one author when one story mm-hmm. for the anthology, but we couldn't choose. Mm-hmm. So welcome. Right. <laughs> you two are the chosen ones. Um, and after that, it was um, a lot of editing, a lot of being nervous about how the story would be like accepted or not. Um, but it was such a fantastic time. And I honestly, I wouldn't like change it for anything. It was such a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. And working with Soraya was amazing. Uh, I can say a lot of details, but I'm still working with her and sure. other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is amazing. Like she is the greatest. And yeah, it definitely was a great experience. So that's how the anthology and me between all those big names came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's yeah pretty much how it happened yeah that's that's cool it Zoraida strikes me as some like her 
public vibe online like she seems cool and it's cool to hear that you know behind the scenes she's also she's cool <laughs> continues to be cool yeah um i that's been my experience fortunately with with a lot of folks um i like i had amparo ortiz on the podcast a while back and she's basically the same in in dms <laughs> yeah. and you know as she well you know, sometimes maybe even a little bit sillier in, in DMs than, <laughs> yeah. than in public, of course, as, as I'm sure we all are. Um, now, um, so I remember, and if, if this is a little bit like too spicy, we don't have to stay on, on this topic for, for too long, but um, there was some drama, some Twitter drama oh, yeah. that happened. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you remember this and you know exactly yes. what I'm talking about. Um, if, uh, well, I could set the stage or just maybe we'll hear kind of what uh, <laughs> what your um, experience of that drama was, sort of how you came to know about that drama. Assuming we're talking about the same drama, and I think we are. If you want, set the stage just to make sure we're in the same page. Sure. Okay. Okay. So the the drama that um, that is coming to my mind is that it was... Around, I think it was May of 21, um, May of 2021, and um, somebody, I, th I think the Reclaim the Stars anthology had just been announced, and I think there was, uh, like, the had the list of the authors and, like, the cover reveal and, and all of that, um, and then somebody on the internet um, went and was like, Notice that, um, you know, certain authors who are published in the anthology in their solo work, like in their novels, caught some flack and controversy because of um, ways that they represented uh, different cultures and how there was a criticism of um, like anti-Indigenous. Anti uh, I, I know that one of the authors is criticized in that way. And so... So somebody kind of went through the list of authors and looked up personal information and uh, pretty much used that personal information just to kind of um, essentially like discount people's Latinidad because mm -hmm. most of the authors are diaspora authors. Um, and I remember, I remember seeing this person, I, I found the, the tweets of the person who, who did this. I'm not going to name names or get specific because these are small. Well, the one was a small Twitter account that mm -hmm. blew up. Um, and I'm not interested in, uh, you know, drawing specific attention to that. But, um, but I did see the, cause like they, they screenshotted the list that they made from like a private chat and like put it on Twitter and was like, okay, this is like, they, they like looked everybody up and said, oh, their Twitter bio says this or that, but USA or but like no, nothing's in there. And so trying trying to say that like, oh, you know, the publishing industry is so U.S. focused in terms of like uh, Latina authors being published. It's all it's all diaspora. It's all U.S. focused, which I think is actually a very valid criticism. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, um, a very, very important thing to talk about. Um but then it got weird. It, it got weird very, very fast because of the whole, like, we're going to list this person. We're going to look up every information we can find online to prove, you know, their identity and, and their experience. And I'm like, 
yikes. Uh, so I, I was seeing, and I was seeing because I follow so many Latina authors on Twitter, just everybody, the, the whole, I was like, I'd be on Twitter. I was, I was nervous. I wasn't even involved. I was just watching it. I was watching people. I was watching like certain people fight certain other people. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what is like, happening? I'm like, I was, I was stressed. I was stressed. And I, well, I was also stressed because at this time too, like I knew I was going to be in the anthology that we're about to talk about Mm -hmm. in in a few minutes. And I was like, this is my worst nightmare actually. Um, Cause I deal and, and have dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome stuff, which I've talked about on the podcast many times and I've worked through and I'm mostly, mostly at peace with it. But like sometimes like this type of thing, I'm like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, what's going to happen when they get their hands on this, on this anthology, they, they see myself, my name, and, and I, I'm going to be invalidated by the, uh, by the identity um, validation folks that live on twitter.com. That's kind of in a nutshell, um, my, my experience of it. And my, my main problem with it is, is not the, the criticisms of like the certain authors who, who they had uh, problematic elements in novels that they published on their own. Those are valid criticisms. Um, my, my problem is also not with the, with the criticism of saying like, look, so much of like, you go to the bookstore or whatever, and, uh, and you find like Latino books, it's people that, um, that are diaspora or, or like there's, there's definitely an imbalance, um, in the, in the U S publishing market. Like that's an important conversation. My, my criticism is the listing of the people and the, mm-hmm. and the analyzing of whatever details they choose to put out about their lives or not, or their identities or not. And to say, well, therefore you don't have any information. So therefore you're not. And what are you doing in this anthology is basically what that whole action um, sort of how that came across to me. Um, So that was, I don't know, that was, that felt like a very rambling explanation of sort of what the situation was. That's how I experienced it. And, and sort of what I was seeing, I'm really curious about, especially since you're, uh, you're an author involved in this. I know, I don't think you had a lot to say about it when it happened, because I think I did, I did see you maybe say a couple of things. Um, But I'm curious as, as to like, what I guess your experience of seeing all all of that was like, what was the discourse that you saw and all of that? Honestly, it was, it was extremely scary. First of all, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the baby in that anthology. Um, That's my debut story. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And I think until that point, it had been a lot of, Yay! A lot of celebration mm-hmm. around the anthology. So first of all, this is mm-hmm. scary for me as a new author. It's scary for me mm-hmm. um, in many different ways. Um, I like. I'm gonna go point by point. Um, first yeah. about the list, I felt very mm-hmm. uncomfortable with that, especially because mm-hmm. uh, at some point um, the conversation started about uh, like stop being about again the valid criticism that you mentioned and mm-hmm. it became about hey um you're not latino enough <laughs> to like right. write about mm-hmm. these experiences um mm-hmm. and one problem i have with that is that if we're gonna talk like see it that way then i wouldn't be able to write in this ontology because it's an ontology of diaspora authors and I've been mm-hmm. living all my life here in Puerto Rico, so I'm not from the diaspora. Right. Um, but also, right. 
um, in the list that was going around that I closed my, like I deleted my Twitter app for like a few weeks after that, but like the things I did see in the list, um, they were talking about me in a way that almost felt like tokenization because it was mm -hmm. like, oh, she is the only um, Latin right. American author. She is mm -hmm. the only mm -hmm. um, author that's not yeah. from the diaspora. It was kind of mm -hmm. putting me in a pedestal in order to attack the people that are from the diaspora. So that was right. honestly uncomfortable. It was it was a bad right. time. And again, I wasn't a new author. Um, I didn't know how to respond to this. I didn't know what to say or if I needed to say something or if I should just delete the app, which what I did. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I was a little bit lost. I do have to say that Soraida and the whole team behind the anthology were amazing. Like they reached out mm -hmm. to me and Cersei. Um, they mm -hmm. asked if we were doing okay, if we had anything mm -hmm. like that we needed, if we needed mm -hmm. um, help, if we needed to talk, if, They mm -hmm. wanted to know we were okay and they made sure that um, we had anything that we needed in order to like feel secure in, in like in mm -hmm. our stories and in being in the ontology and everything. So that was mm -hmm. that that part was great in the way that I feel like a few decades ago that type of support wouldn't have come from the company. Um, mm -hmm. And that was kind of good but again it was really uncomfortable to be seen as this mm -hmm. um one right person uh between yeah. all these people who are not latino and again mm -hmm. the ontology is about the latino diaspora the latina diaspora right, right. so right I am exactly. The <laughs> yeah yeah um i i do remember the language that was used around your name in that list too, like that is one of the things that stands out to me and also and also some of the language that they um that the list said about Zoraida and, and some of the other ones too and, and I was like dude this is <laughs> what is happening and another thing um, is that they were but, looking at the list of yeah. names and people come coming from the diaspora as if every single one of us had the same opportunities to stay in our countries or as if this mm -hmm. isn't a result of colonization and the abuse of the empire. Like you cannot right. talk about how few publications we have from Latino America, how few publications mm -hmm. we have from people actually living in Latino America and mm -hmm. not talk about um, the fact that the publications we do have from the diaspora are the result of mm -hmm. a violent colonization process that has taken mm -hmm. uh, place during the last uh, six or, or five centuries. And it's still going mm -hmm. on and it still works. Like we're still living here in Puerto Rico in a colony. We, we are still mm -hmm. like finding the effects of the colonization that comes from like mm -hmm. the 15th century um, today. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of disheartening to see some of the people that actually talk about these topics just disregard mm -hmm. the experience and the stories yeah. that people from the diaspora had to tell um, mm -hmm. just because, again, they're part of the diaspora. When this right. anthology was born from this desire to like feature mm -hmm. voices, Um, in science fiction and fantasy 
of people who had to leave their places, be it a good reason or a bad reason, people had to leave mm -hmm. their homes in order to like mm -hmm. become part of the diaspora. So right. I think it didn't like it mixed two things together that didn't need to be together. Like it started mm -hmm. being like uh, an actual criticism of publishing actual criticism mm -hmm. of things that you can portray in your books and it ended up mm -hmm. being like almost an attack to authors from mm -hmm. the diaspora um instead yeah. of attacking the publishing industry that creates this um mm -hmm. glass ceilings that creates this walls between authors from the diaspora mm -hmm. and white authors and authors from latino america right. and everyone else so right Right. I don't know. I think that conversation would have been so fruitful if it hadn't been mm -hmm. led, led that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the most important things about that conversation were kind of lost. And one of, one of them is, and, and something that I definitely, you know, try to be really cognizant of, especially on this podcast, is yeah, there is a difference between diaspora and people still living in Latino America. Like, well, I didn't, I never lived in Puerto Rico. I visited Puerto Rico a lot in summers growing up and I visit there, you know, every, every few years now, but that's not the same as living there. That's not the same experience that my cousins have living there. And, and even my, my cousins who live stateside now, um, as more time goes and they continue to live stateside, Puerto Rico still changes and living in Puerto Rico, you know, comes to mean different things. Um, so one of the points that I think is a really good point that the list makers uh, made is, is that, or, or one of the people um, supporting, you know, the, the whole like list making thing was, was like, yeah, if you leave Ecuador, if you left Ecuador or Colombia, wherever, if you left that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it's a different country today mm -hmm. than it was than from what you remember, especially if you were a little kid, you know, versus when you were, you were an adult when you left and, and all this. And I think, I think that's a valid point. Um, and I think, I think that is true, but it turned, it, it definitely, it definitely turned into like, therefore um, how you, you're not allowed to write about any of this because you don't, not to quote bean girls, but you don't even go here. Um, <laughs> Like, and, and it's just, it's just, especially since from the start, at least from what I saw, like as just general, the audience, the public, what I saw in the marketing of Reclaim the Stars was from the start, the language said, this is the Latinx, the Latina diaspora. Mm -hmm. So the diaspora, it was always clear to, to me from the start, like what the main uh, focus was or what the main source was. And so I'm like, so then why are these people mad that like most of the authors are diaspora? Yes, like yeah. they, they just want to, they just want to get on Twitter and, and choose a fight, I guess. Um, which is, which is sad because like, I know the things that they usually talk about and I get so much from their perspective. Like, I think it's so much of the time it's like super valuable. Um, so that's why like seeing this whole thing was just like, it, it was just weird. It, it, it pitted, it pitted people against each other that I never thought would be against each other for like the couple of days that it went down. And I was like, 
I was like, I was so stressed. I couldn't. Yeah, and another thing is that it it jumped from even the list and trying to polish Mm -hmm. Latinidad to like talking about classics in Latino America and Mm -hmm. how structural machismo was being upheld. And it Mm -hmm. became such a completely different conversation that again, I deleted the app like the second day um, because I was like, you Mm -hmm. know what? This is still in my piece. Mm -hmm. I... I am yep. getting way too stressed <laughs> yeah. about this. Um, yeah. And again, you are already a little bit stressed when you're sharing your story in any type of way, mm-hmm. because you know yeah. that even one person, at least one person is going to read it. At least one person is going yeah. to have an opinion and it might not be a mm-hmm. good opinion or it might uh, right. become an attack on you. So um, mm-hmm. it, it was just being too much. So uh, mm-hmm. from what I saw, on those first two days, it escalated so mm-hmm. quickly to something that wasn't even like resembling at all to the initial conversation. Mm-hmm. So, internet, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. internet. Yeah, it was. Uh, woo! It was. Uh, it was quite a quite a ride. Um, so hopefully, this next anthology experience is going to be. Uh, much less like no drama, um, you know, uh, nothing, nothing at all. Um, so which remind me, cause in my mind, the young adult anthology and the adult anthology, they, they both kind of run together and that's because, and I mentioned this on the podcast before we have a shared discord, a, a shared mm-hmm. private discord. And so I think of them as like the same project. And so I don't have any separation or I don't, I usually don't remember like, oh, this person is in the adult anthology and this person's in the young adult. So which one are you in? I'm in the young adult anthology. Okay. Okay. Which is, what's the title? Uh, Where Monsters Lurk and Magic Heights. I hope I pronounce it like correctly because sometimes I like change the monsters for the magic and the magic for the monsters. I am hoping. Yeah. You can switch those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what was the process for you getting into this anthology? Um, so this anthology, again, Lauren did a submission call and I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. <laughs> right. That's okay. pretty much yep. what happens with most of the projects mm-hmm. I'm doing right now. Um, I mm-hmm. see something. I like how it looks. And I say, Vamos a tirar no de pecho, and I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially I was writing like a romance story, but it was more like, um, a contemporary romance. Um, mm-hmm. but Lauren said, Hey, do you have something fantasy? Because the original submission call I replied to was for a romance anthology. Um, mm-hmm. and she was like, Hey, do you have anything fantasy? Because I like your voice, but I have way too many romances for this anthology already, but I would love to mm-hmm. have you um, in, fan- in in something that has to do with fantasy or science fiction, um, either young adult or adult. And I was like, let me get back to you. So I mm-hmm. searched for this project, which wasn't finished at the time. Um, Cause in theory, this was um, the seats for a series of short stories that would help me create the world for a more high fantasy series that I have in mind 
Mm -hmm. that have still not been scrapped. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I'll be able Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, But I really like this story that mixes a lot of uh, mythology and fantasy and everything together. Mm -hmm. And I I said, hey, I have this draft, which is not finished. But if you want to like look at it, like just let me know. And she read it and she liked it. And here we are. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we, we have a, a shared discord. Did, did you have anything like that with, um, with the reclaim the stars with Sarita and everybody, was there like a shared thing that you guys sort of collaborated on or was it all just email? It was mostly email. I do like, I mean, Sarita is my friend now, like in the beginning, obviously mm-hmm. it was more like editor author, but right now she's my friend. Sure, she sure. comes to Puerto Rico and we mm-hmm. hang out and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. so in the beginning it was mostly, um, like email and stuff right now, I would say mm-hmm. that it's moved to, to like, uh, a group chat. We're not all in that mm-hmm. group chat. Um, there's like a few of us because a lot of us mm-hmm. live in completely different places. And if we made a group mm-hmm. chat for all of us, none of us would be able to sleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was a little bit less interactive, to call it a way, between the authors, because Mm -hmm. it was mostly uh, surrounding uh, the emails that we got and the emails Mm -hmm. that we shared, Mm -hmm. not like the Discord Mm -hmm. where we're sending memes, we're sending Mm -hmm. stuff. And there's a lot more communication between like the authors in this ontologies. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because... It, it seems to be, uh, again, that um, Lauren's way of doing things, of having setting up the, these discords is like a it's like a new thing, because um, I had a few short pieces published in some other anthologies. And that's like nothing like that. Like you don't know you have no idea who the other authors are. But what's been nice about this experience is that we get to sort of network uh, a mm-hmm. little bit and kind of get to know each other somewhat so that, you know, when the books come out, we feel not, not that we're a marketing team, but just like, it's a little bit, it feels a little bit more natural to, uh, to do more with like promotion and come up with different ways of doing that. Like me combining this podcast that I do with, uh, (laughs) uh, with, you know, doing all this, having, having other authors that are in the anthology on, on here, um, like that sort of stuff just gels more naturally. I, I think that's just a very, interesting model and that maybe um other editors who do anthologies or or whatever um could take a page from that book (laughs) so with all of that being said uh i would love to invite you to read a short excerpt of your story that is coming out where monsters lurk and magic hides it's coming out november 10th yes from b infinite publishing which is a small publisher all the way around you're supporting small authors small publishers um and latina folks black folks people of color all all around it's a great great mix of stories that we have going on here let me just open this and here we are mm-hmm. um my story is called uh, When They Come. And just to give like a little bit of about it, um, it's a story about um, two 
semidiosas that have mm -hmm. to find a way to revive their diosa mothers after someone kills them. Um, it's mm -hmm. a story that deals a lot with um, our idea of divinity and our idea of justice. Since I study law, mm -hmm. that's something that I been trying to like incorporate and try to explore through my fiction so it deals a lot with the idea of justice and our idea of like divinity so um here's a small excerpt of when they come the worst part of dying is coming back from the dead salt water burns my lungs igniting fire throughout my body i'm suspended in space my body feeling light as a feather but as expensive as the universe then comes the cold, a sharp needle that shapes the angles and curves of my bones again, and the fire that makes everything come together. I am whole again. The water around me guides me, my body through the shorts in Estrellada, lulling me until I'm in the fountains of souls. When everything is still, I open my eyes. The first breath is always painful. No matter how many times I've done it, a gasp escapes my lips as, art, as air runs through my chest. Everything becomes clear. The salt in the air, the murmur of the fountain, the orange hue of the light that makes its way to this room. The stone ceiling is decorated with an image of Principio y Luz, the creators of the worlds. Principio, sitting by his brother, is shaping the worlds with his hands while Luz breathes life into them. The mural allows us to reminisce in the powers that made us be every time we reincarnate from water. Su Alteza, a voice calls from behind me, and I slowly sit up. A tall girl stares at me, her face betraying no emotion. She's wearing the Templo del Agua, pale blue and deep purple. Her skin, glowing like polished onyx, looks as cold as her eyes. After giving me a quick, a quick look, she stares at the thin board in her hands. You finally come back. Maraje, I reply, giving her a sharp nod. Her hands are busy scribbling something on the board so she doesn't see me. Semiguari has been waiting for you. Sounds ominous. I try standing up, but my legs are not strong enough to hold my weight yet. Marahe takes a few steps to help me balance. After I've regained enough strength, she lets me go and returns to her board. Follow me. Semiguari is my mother, la diosa del agua. Semi are the most powerful dioses, the ones that keep the three worlds in harmony and balance. Most of me, like my mother, live in Seki, the world of humans, managing the different templos and keeping semidioses like me control. As I follow Marahe, my mind goes back to that morning. I was sure I had caught Saimar unguarded. I studied patterns, checked schedules, and gave myself a five-minute window to kill her. But when I entered the room where the fuego semidioses gather, it was empty. My first mistake was stepping in. As soon as I did, the doors closed and Saimar was behind me, her body as warm as always. My second mistake was turning around. Let me find like the other excerpt because I don't want to give everything away. Sure, sure. So again, just to give like a small idea of what's going on before I find, I start reading these other excerpts. Um, the protagonist, her name is Andrea. Um, she is a water goddess and Saimar is a fuego goddess. They're both um, the daughters of the main semi uh, the main semi 
Seki dioses, um, which are Taino uh, divinities. Mm-hmm. Um, and this next excerpt takes place after their mothers are dead. So as I mentioned, they need to find mm-hmm. all their mothers. So this is the scene that comes right after that. Simple instant, instinct pulls me to find Saimar. It's the same thing that made me hide in her room when Marahe fell for one of her pranks and stormed around the temple looking for us, back when we were children, before our fights started. I take Atana's horse, who's faster than any other animal I've ridden. It's been only a few minutes when the, the Montañas de la Luna, the mountain chain where Barrio Alto is located, appear on the horizon. Two hours later, I'm walking through the food district. Barrio Alto is famous for its restaurants and taverns. But if Saimar is in town, I know she'll be at Fuego's Memories, her uncle's tavern. The building was constructed in the shape of a cloud. It stands out among the others, but it's the batatas fritas that make it famous. My stomach rolls, a reminder that I've had nothing to eat since I reincarnated. In front of the tavern, a few groups chat. A man plays guitar a few feet away, and two men are singing and clapping as their friends dance to the rhythm of Barrio Alto's melodic tunes. A dog wags its tail, mimicking the happiness of the groups. The happiness in my heart is a vivid contrast to everything I see. As I get closer, more people join in dancing. I'm startled when a hand drops on my shoulder. Andrea, that's you, right? Seba, one of the Fuego Semidioses, smiled me, recognition in his brown eyes. He's wearing his guard uniform, so he must have come here right after finishing his, his shift at the Templo de Fuego. It is you. Man, Saimar is not going to believe this, he asked. He continued, making way for us through the crowd. You really came back fast. Didn't she uh, kill me this morning? Yes. Nice gift, by the way. She told me the blade was yours. His ears turn bright red, but his smiles never falters. What brings you around here? I don't think I've seen you here since, well, never. That isn't true. Saimar and I spent most days hiding from Codas's lectures under her tío's bar, betting on who would find more fire lizards around the tavern, but none of them is actually important right now. Is Saimar here? I hear my voice and flinch at the severity of my tone. Seba notices too, and loses his smile. Why? Are you looking for revenge? No, I just need to talk. It's not revenge I need from her. He doesn't look convinced, but he greets the guard at the door nevertheless and leads me in. Here, here! The reason for our celebration has arrived. When Seba opens the door to the tavern, chaos welcomes up. There are groups everywhere, some louder than the others. Their yells can be to be heard above each other. I find Saimar quickly her bright red hair braided in a cascade down her back. She's surrounded by people I barely recognize, but they seem to be having a lot of fun. Once we're close enough, I register that she's telling a dramatically embellished version of this morning's fight. Any semblance of goodwill I have evaporates. Saimar, can I speak with you? The diosa herself, she says, clapping slowly. Everybody, thank Andrea for dying again. The chorus of giggling thank yous that follow only adds to my anger. Saimar, we need to talk, I repeat, emphasizing each word and trying not to scream in frustration. 
Don't let it eat at you. I know it sucks to die, but it's not your fault. We just have different experiences. Oh, and talent too. Can't forget that part. Seba laughs, along with the few semi-dioses I've seen in other celebrations like this. Saimar finally turns to look at me, a lazy smile on her face. One look at my face and it all fades away. What's wrong, Andrea? And even though I'm angry, even though I've rehearsed what I wanted to say, the words get stuck in my throat. I just stare. Come with me, she says, taking my hand and pulling me away from the screams and racket. We pass a series of doorways and make our way upstairs toward the attic room. She opens the door with a set of keys and ushers me in. I trip over one of her bags and she grimaces, but leaves me to the farthest corner where my favorite coat, the one I was wearing earlier today, has been laid out on a sofa. Behind it, a window opens up to the forest, displaying the green giants of Barahona and the purple hue of the darkening sky. I register its beauty while my brain tries to force my mouth to speak, to make any sound, to work. Saimar hands me a glass of water and sits behind me, uh, beside me on the sofa. Her eyes are soft as I drink. What happened, Andrea? The mouth that had been grinning a few moments ago turns into a thin line as I tell her. Are you sure about this? I bite down a harsh reply and I remind myself that Saimar just learned that her mother had died. Our mothers, a voice in my head, reminds me as I fight tears. I can only nod. What's the plan? I blink. Plan? You came all the way here instead of going to your temple. There must be a plan. I didn't think that far ahead. I answer honestly, and her eyes look at me incredulous. Then think again. Is there anything else you remember? Did they mention anything at all? Why do you want to know? If I'm going after them, I need to know where to start. I go through the events scene by scene in my head. He spoke to the phantasmas in the Laiko dialect. I could only understand a few words. Saimar stands and grabs the bag I stumble on, filling it with random things around the room. Then I'm going to Laika, and I'm going with you. She rolls her eyes. Of course you are. Are you strong enough to get us there? I hadn't teleported here before, so I hadn't used the energy at regain after reincarnation. Still, it had been less than a day I couldn't be sure that I'd been strong enough to make the trip back and forth, and even less if I could do it twice and bring us back. I can try. She sends a small grin in my direction. It's not the big smile she was wearing earlier, but it's real. That's all I'm asking for. And that's my excerpt from my story. Oh, wow. You know, I I love that in your story, you said that you're dealing with like, divinity and and justice and, and all that and like you kind of have some of your theology in there um in mine as well there's uh like there's a whole thing with goddesses that uh, is an important part of the story and um a bit of my like actual theology is sort of expressed in how the story plays out so uh so i i love that connection that you have to and i'm looking forward to reading the whole thing i i haven't read it even though i can go into the google docs and like see everybody's stories i'm like i'm not i haven't done that because i think i just i want to have i want to have it in the final form um and you know not like i think at first i sort of like you know maybe skimmed through people's stories to just be like okay what is this person generally writing about um but i felt very much like 
I'm not allowed to look at it because it's not the final, <laughs> like, it's like, oh, it's like, I don't, I don't know. It just, and I think I've talked about this, uh, about this in the discord and like everybody else was like, no, Taylor, you're just weird. Like, it's not a big deal. You don't need to like think about it that hard, but, but like I, I do, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not, I don't know. I just, I just like, okay, I can open up the Google doc and like already see the story, but it's just like, well, but what if there's. I don't know what if there's what if it's different and I don't I wouldn't want to I think what I'm trying to avoid is like what if I read somebody's first draft and I was like oh this is amazing and then it changed in the final form and then I, I didn't like the final form because it's not the first like you know what I mean I'm like no I've, I'm gonna just have the final form yeah, in yeah. my brain and in my experience <laughs> um I don't know do, do you feel that way or I is that just a me to thing? do the same so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I was tempted to read the other stories since um, I don't know if you mentioned it before in the podcast, but we have like a folder with all of the stories and we're working in that folder. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. since I had access to the folder, I was so tempted to just like maybe read this story or maybe read that other one. But I said, you know mm -hmm. what, Linda, you have to be patient. Mm -hmm. Your story is not polished yet. Um, so let the other authors mm -hmm. have the chance to like polish theirs. And then you can just fangirl and mm -hmm. read everything. Yes, 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 exactly. Well, the internet is uh, telling us that we need to wrap up. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this has been a lovely conversation. I do want to make sure that people know where they can follow you, how they can keep up with uh, any of your future work. Okay, so um, I have Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I am not right now like completely connected to my social media because I'm, I'm in law school. I have a lot of work this semester so I try my best to be present, but just in case, if I didn't see a message or something quickly, that's the reason. Uh, my Twitter is Miss Linda Bennett, and my TikTok and Instagram is Linda.Reads. Thank you so much again for coming on the show today. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Linda for coming on the show and having such a wonderful conversation with me. Be sure to look for Where Monsters Lurk and Magic Hides coming out on November 10th. And I hope you all have a beautiful rest of your day.